Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 18 Consolidation While it sunk in that there would be no repeat of the European adventure in the Cup Winners' Cup and no return trip to Wembley for the Charity Shield in August, the edge was taken off the disappointment by an overwhelming sense of pride of having made it to the Cup Final in the first place. On Sunday afternoon, the team toured the streets of Watford in an open-top bus to say thank you for the support. The players were staggered by the turnout. Among the sea of supporters were two of the club's favourite sons, Ian Bolton and Luther Blissett who had been with Graham Taylor at the start of the journey but were detached observers on the Hornets' momentous day. Blissett was at Wembley as part of the ITV team, and as he walked onto the pitch before the match, the fans chanted his name. It made him conscious that he was no longer part of the team, that it was not his day. It was incredible to see all that yellow and red, but I felt I should have been playing. I went to speak to a few of the lads, but I found I wanted to get away from them and leave them to it. This was the biggest game in the club's history, and I wasn't involved. Since leaving Watford, Ian Bolton had gone a long way to solving the problems in his private life. He'd got divorced and had met someone new, Tina. I'd have loved to have been at Wembley as a player, he says. From a career point of view, I'd made a mistake leaving Watford when I did, but from a life point of view, things were far better. I met a new girl and we later had a daughter and life was very good again. I know for a fact if I'd stayed at Watford, I'd have played in that cup final whether because of the injuries or because I got my form back. I could have got a ticket for the match if I'd asked, but I didn't want to be there, to be honest. To go there as a supporter and watch, I'm not sure I could have done it. Tina and I had a great day, a barbecue on the patio, and we watched on the telly. I was as gutted when the goals went in as if I'd been playing, more so, probably. As Bolton and Blissett stood in the crowd, Taylor spotted them and gave a wave, holding eye contact long enough for them all to appreciate the significance of the moment. Bolton's Watford days were over, but Blissett was on the cusp of coming home. He had already spoken to Taylor about the possibility, and several newspapers that Sunday morning readily stoked the speculation. That wasn't the only item in the press to catch the eye. As the hangovers wore off the morning after the night before, Morris Johnston had another reason to reach for the headache pills. The News of the World had run a big story, quoting Johnston saying that it was his dream to play for Celtic. Graham Taylor was livid, but let it lie for a few days. A week after the cup final, he was invited to Glasgow by Bell's Whiskey, the sponsor of the Manager of the Month award, to see Scotland play England at Hampden Park. He went with Rita and Eddie Plumley and his wife Fran. The game ended 1-1, with Johnston coming on to replace Scotland's goalscorer Mark McGee. Although he wanted to have a word with Johnston, Taylor knew Glasgow was probably not the place for a confrontation so he asked Scotland's manager, Jock Steen, if he minded him flying to Marseille to watch their next match the following week. After the France game, Jock said to Morris, There's someone who wants to see you, and he was so surprised to see me his face dropped. He knew I'd flown out to bollock him, says Taylor. I needed to talk to him because we'd lost a cup final. None of us had covered ourselves in glory, and the last thing the supporters wanted to read the next morning was that he was desperate to go to Celtic. I had a real go at him for that. I said, I'm not having this crap. We'll sort it out and the chances are you will go to Celtic, but any more of this and you'll stay at Watford and you won't be playing in the first team. You had to be like that with them. Taylor liked managing Johnston, but the player was in danger of upsetting the balance at the club. Although resigned to losing the striker, Taylor was determined to do the deal on his own terms and slapped a £2 million price tag on Johnston. Complicating matters was the fact that Johnston had an agent, Frank Boyd, who seemed determined to place as many stories about his client in the press as possible. Taylor disliked agents even then. He wouldn't even let the guy in his office, says George Riley. The more Boyd and Johnston tried to engineer a transfer, the more Taylor dug his heels in. There was no way we were going to stop Morris going in the end, says Taylor. Celtic were interested and that particular move was always going to happen, but it needed to be done in a certain way. Boyd also represented Charlie Nicholas, the Arsenal striker, 
who had moved down from Celtic in the summer of 1983. Nicholas and Johnston went out on the town together, and the rumour was that what Johnston really wanted was to join a London club. The Celtic stories were floated to generate some interest from the likes of Arsenal and Tottenham. Johnston denied it, but one day Tottenham's manager, Peter Shreves, rang Bertie Mee to tell him a third party had been touting Johnston around for £750,000. Johnston was under contract, and so the transfer could wait. Taylor was tired, and he had no intention of letting the matter ruin his holiday. The long season had caught up with everybody. There had barely been a break the previous summer, with Blissett's transfer to Milan and the preparations for the UEFA Cup. With the European matches and the Cup run, Watford had played 57 games that season. Taylor went away with his family, leaving John Ward at the helm. Ward says, Graham said to me, I'm going on holiday with Rita and I'm going to be completely out of contact. You can't phone me, so you're in charge. If anything happens, speak to Bertie. I thought, well, nothing could go wrong in two weeks. A few days later, Jerry Armstrong, who was loving life playing for Real Mallorca, rang. Mallorca are organising a pre-season tournament, he said. It's going to be Mallorca, Barcelona, Rapid Vienna and Watford. It'll be fantastic. I said to Bertie, What do you reckon? says Ward. Bertie replied, Well, the manager left you in charge, so what do you think? Jerry had invited me over to have a look and talk to them about it, and I thought a weekend in Mallorca couldn't be bad, so I flew out there. It was a great couple of days, really lovely to see Jerry and see how well he'd fitted in there. Everyone knew him and he spoke Spanish well. Everywhere we went, people wanted to buy him a drink. Armstrong showed Ward the facilities and explained the format of the tournament. We were in a super hotel and Jerry said that was where Watford would be based, says Ward. The training ground looked fantastic and the club would get paid a decent fee for coming. It all sounded really good and I thought it couldn't go wrong, so I told Bertie I'd agreed to do it. By the time the tournament came round, in August, Taylor's nemesis, Terry Venables, had been appointed head coach at Barcelona, adding a bit of spice to the encounter. The trip didn't quite turn out the way Armstrong had portrayed it. It was the hottest time of the year, says Ward. Rapid Vienna have pulled out, so they've changed the format and we have to play two games in two days. The hotel we're in is not the one I've seen. Barcelona are staying there, and we're in a pretty ordinary place. We didn't have a swimming pool or anywhere nearby to train. It was boiling hot during the day, so we couldn't do the proper fitness sessions we needed to do, and the games were kicking off at 10pm, which is when they play in Spain, and I hadn't known that. To put it bluntly... It had all gone wrong. Armstrong acted as interpreter for Watford while they were on the island and even withdrew two million pesetas, around £10,000, from his bank account so Watford's players had some spending money because the club wouldn't be getting its appearance fee until after the two games had been played. Watford lost 2-1 to both Barcelona and Real Mallorca. It was the first time a Venables team had ever got the better of Graham Taylor. The matches were intense and competitive. Not the ideal fixtures, as they sought to bring their fitness levels up before the start of the new season. Against Mallorca, the centre-half spat in my face, says Riley. It smelled of garlic. It was absolutely horrible. So I dropped him. Just forearms smashed him across the face. The linesman hadn't seen it, but the crowd was booing me. Graham substituted me, and as I came off, he said, If you ever do that again, it'll be your last game for this club. I said, So if I spat in your face, what would you do? Riley showed Taylor the garlicky slime. Graham didn't find me or drop me after that. I think he realised we were having a tough time out there on the pitch. It might have been a friendly, but the Spaniards didn't want to lose to a team from England in front of their own crowd, so they were using all the tactics you'd expect. Standing on your feet at corners, kneeing you between the legs, spitting. It was sweltering, even though the games were at night. It wasn't just a pre-season game, where you were looking to get fitter and sharper. We were getting kicked about. Ward knew Taylor had grimaced his way through the whole trip. The players hadn't kicked off about it, and fortunately no one knew I'd planned it, he says, but I felt terrible because it was a disaster. I just kept my head down because I thought I knew what was coming. The team travelled home on a Sunday. Ward and Taylor took their seats next to each other on the plane. Still Taylor had not said anything, not even in jest. Ward says, as we fastened our seatbelts, he leaned across and said to me very quietly, Well, Wardy, I don't think we'll be doing that again, will we? It was so simple, and it was the biggest put-down I've ever had in my life, but I had to respect him. I knew he'd hated every minute of that trip, 
but he put up with it, and he didn't give me a hard time about it because he knew he'd let me get on with things while he was away and I'd just got it wrong. Other people would have made a fuss, but it was the mark of the man. When Taylor got home, a journalist from a national newspaper rang and asked him what he thought of Maurice Johnston's transfer request. Earlier that day, Johnston had handed the manager an envelope. Taylor knew full well what it was, but the fact the journalist was ringing confirmed what he already suspected, that Johnston's agent was tipping off the press, agitating to get the transfer moving. Taylor played dumb. Eventually the reporter had to admit he knew for certain Johnston had handed Taylor an envelope which contained a written transfer request. Oh, I don't know what it is, deadpan Taylor. I don't work on Sundays. I'll open it tomorrow. Johnston, or rather his agent, just couldn't keep out of the papers. Part of the problem was that when he spoke to journalists, Johnston was too free and couldn't see how stark his words would look in black and white. While in Mallorca, Johnston spoke to Armstrong, who had spent his fair share of time in the spotlight after the 1982 World Cup. Moe said he'd done another story with one of the papers, and that he'd managed to get it pulled one week, but they weren't going to hold off any longer, says Armstrong. I asked him what sort of story it was, if it was a bad one. He told me he'd had a bit of a go at Graham. Instinctively, Armstrong put his head in his hands. I said, oh, you haven't. Well, you're in trouble. If you want to get away, you're going completely the wrong way about it. When the article appeared a fortnight later, Johnston was quoted saying that Taylor acted like God and behaved like a dictator, claiming the manager wanted to know what he was up to every minute of the day. While none of that was particularly wide of the mark, Johnston should have known not to say it in public. I handed in a transfer request, which I regret now, says Johnson. I did want to go to Celtic, but I should have handled it better. I let Graham Taylor down because he had made me the player I was at that moment. He spent £200,000 on me, which was a gamble, and while I was at Watford I got my international debut. Looking back, I should have shown Graham and the fans more respect. Once the idea of Luther Blissett coming home had been aired, most supporters believed it was only a matter of time. However, it wasn't until a fortnight before the first game of the season that Milan finally released his registration. There were reports in the newspapers that the Italians had favoured a transfer to second division Portsmouth because their new target was Pompey's centre-forward Mark Haightley. A swap deal would have saved on the transfer fee and hidden the loss they were about to take on Blissett. Although Haightley did move to Milan, there was no way Blissett was prepared to drop down a division. While negotiations with Watford were going on, Blissett was also approached by Manchester United. Blissett did speak to their manager, Ron Atkinson. I chose not to go there for one or two reasons, he says, refusing to elaborate further. Coming back to Watford, where his heart lay, wasn't completely without regret or risk. I had two years left on my contract, and in some ways it would have done me better to hang in there for another year and see how it went, he says. But I needed to be enjoying what I was doing, and the enjoyment had gone. I wasn't getting the chances to score goals. Not scoring is one thing. Not getting any chances is really not fun. The Italian game never suited Blissett. A player who needed to be involved in the game, feeding off the buzz from the crowd, his runs and touches created. He wasn't afraid to miss chances, and even when things weren't going well in the game, he would keep shooting and keep making the runs. The tight, cautious style of Serie A was as far removed from what he enjoyed about the game as it was possible to get. The friendlies and cup matches in Italy were very relaxed, but when the league games came round it was so tense and they found it hard to express themselves, he says. It was defensive. There were some games where there wasn't a worthwhile shot to talk about. That was not how I was brought up to play football. To me, football is about trying to score more goals than the opposition. The Blissett transfer was great business for Watford. They paid Milan £550,000 to bring him home. Although it was a club record fee, it was only a bit more than half what they'd sold him for a year earlier. He walked out on a very good contract and took a substantial pay cut, although he was on more money than when he'd left, says Graham Taylor. It was a brave decision, because although he was coming back to a place that was very familiar, that can work both ways. The supporters knew him, and they had certain expectations. The season he left, he scored 27 league goals, and there was nothing to say he was going to score anything like that number again. It took courage to come back, and risk people saying, well, he went to Italy and couldn't cut it. When I tell you that my best annual salary as a footballer 
was £55,000, and that was when I was in Milan. It gives you an idea of how the game has changed, says Blissett. I was coming back home, if you like, but the place had transformed so much. There were a lot of younger players. It was a new team, and it seemed a different place to be. Graham had mellowed a bit, only a little bit, but he gave them a little more latitude with things. He was still very firm, but there was now a little bit more room for the players to express themselves on the pitch. Blissett signed his contract on August the 9th, a fortnight before the start of the season, and was cleared to play in friendlies before his registration documents were released by Milan. He partnered Johnston in the 2-1 defeat to Barcelona with the Scotsman scoring Watford's goal. As the league season drew close, the Italians were still dithering over the paperwork. Eddie Plumley had to dash to Italy to pick up the documents to ensure Blissett could play in Watford's first match against Manchester United at Old Trafford. Plumley went to the Italian FA's headquarters in Rome. Having been made to wait around all day, Plumley was handed an envelope in the nick of time. I thought I'd better just check it. It wasn't a blank sheet of paper, so I opened the envelope while I was still there. It was the right paperwork, but my dealings with the Italians made me think it was worth checking. There were a lot of changes at Watford during that summer. Taylor cleared out some of the young players who were no nearer breaking into the first team than they'd been a year before, such as Francis Cassidy, David Johnson and Neil Williams. Charlie Palmer and Eric Steele joined Derby County in the third division. After speaking to some of the older players, Palmer realised he had to move on. He had asked Taylor for a transfer early in the spring. I could see what was happening, and after playing in the team, I didn't want to go back to the reserves. I was brave. I went and saw him, and I said all the right things, says Palmer. The thing is, when you're twenty, you don't ask Graham Taylor for a transfer. That was a no-no, and he wasn't happy. I'd gone from the first team to being not good enough for the reserves in a matter of months. The writing was on the wall for Palmer. When he was left on the sidelines, as the team trained on the Wembley turf a couple of days before the cup final. Palmer had to get away. At first, Taylor set up a move to Port Vale, managed by John Rudge. As soon as I stepped out of the train station, I knew I wasn't interested, says Palmer. In the end, I went to Derby on a lot less money, and only a year's contract, but it turned out well. Palmer moved on to Notts County a few years later and played at Wembley twice, as they won successive playoff finals to leap through the divisions and into the top flight. Graham gave me the kick up the arse I needed, and I didn't hold any grudges. If I saw him now, I'd shake his hand and say thanks very much for the opportunity, because without Watford and without the discipline and work ethic they gave me, I'd have gone out of the game at eighteen. Steele, sensing that Taylor was preparing to replace Steve Sherwood, knew he needed to go as well. The cup final turned out to be the last first-team match Neil Price and Paul Atkinson played for Watford. Price returned to the reserves and went on loan to Blackpool, where Sam Ellis was still the manager, before joining Swansea City. I think he, Taylor, probably made a decision on me after the cup final and he thought I wasn't good enough for him, says Price. I went to Blackpool and helped them get promoted from the 4th Division and I probably should have gone there, but they offered me two years while John Bond at Swansea offered me three. Within 18 months, Price was at non-league Wickham Wanderers. It was an odd career. I played in some very big games, but it seemed like I was being punished for not playing well in the cup final, and I did feel a bit let down by the club. Atkinson languished in the reserves too. A few months after the cup final, he was named a substitute for the second string against Crystal Palace. As soon as he saw his name next to the number 12 on the team sheet, he turned on his heels and walked out of the ground. Taylor fined him. I had one or two fallouts with Graham. In terms of playing, my biggest problem was I fell between the two things he wanted, an up-and-down central midfielder and an orthodox winger. I was a square peg in a round hole. Graham was a dictator. You either did what he wanted or... Well, that was it, really. Atkinson claims Taylor blocked a move to Sheffield Wednesday because he didn't want him to join another team in Division 1. He didn't want his players coming back to haunt him, I suppose. But I did feel for a while like I was being prevented from moving on, says Atkinson. Did I like him as a man? There's a long pause. I wouldn't say I lost respect for him, even though I had some problems with him. He was successful and you couldn't argue with what he'd done, but if you weren't in his plans... It was like you weren't there sometimes. The way he went about things I sometimes didn't agree with. At times he could be quite belittling of even senior players in front of the rest of the squad. 
He ruled the roost. He had the total backing of the chairman and the board, and I think he got a little bit full of his own importance. Atkinson was named a substitute for a league match at Aston Villa in April 1985, but didn't play. I thought I might get a look in again, but by then I'd made up my mind to go anyway. He eventually went back to Oldham in the summer. Pat Rice, who had been taking on more coaching responsibility, was offered the chance to run Arsenal's youth team. Feeling it was an opportunity he could not turn down, he left, with Tom Wally's inimitable advice ringing in his ears. Boyo, you fucking go in there and you hit them hard. If you go in there soft, when you try to be hard, they won't react because they'll know you'll eventually go back to being soft. After finishing runners-up in the First Division and reaching the FA Cup final, some of Watford's players were irritated they had not been offered an improved incentive scheme. Our bonuses were terrible, says Nigel Callaghan. Before he left, Rice had encouraged the players to stand firm and ask for better payments. Rice said, I said to the Watford players, if you go in there and negotiate your contract and come out quite happy, don't get the arsehole with me because I went in after you and negotiated £10 more for myself and don't get the arsehole with the club because you were perfectly happy when you came out. I said if they wanted better bonuses as a squad, they had to be united, otherwise it would never happen. The issue dragged on all summer. Throughout pre-season, Taylor wasn't happy because someone had questioned him, says Callaghan. By the time we got to the first game of the season against Manchester United at Old Trafford, he was saying, this has been the worst pre-season we've ever had. If you're not absolutely on your game, they're going to murder you. It's on match of the day and we're all going to look stupid. He really wasn't happy at all. But Watford produced a brilliant performance to outplay United. They trailed to a Gordon Strachan penalty until Callaghan scored in the last minute. We hammered them, he says. A draw was the very least we deserved. After that, they offered us slightly better bonuses, and it all got sorted out. As the season unfolded, a problem became apparent. The team was lopsided. There was an embarrassment of Richards in attack, but the defence was still raw and inexperienced. In the third game of the season, Watford trailed Arsenal 4-2 with 15 minutes to go. Taylor sent Blissett on to replace Bardsley and Watford finished the game with five forwards on the pitch. Blissett did pull another goal back, but Watford were unable to grab an equaliser, despite bombarding the Gunners. It was like a throwback to the 1950s, the days of five up front and a devil-may-care attitude to defending. Seeing a forward line of Callaghan, Johnston, Riley, Barnes and Blissett created a buzz, but it quickly became clear it was not a viable tactic. The following week they travelled to West Ham. Les Taylor and Kenny Jackett, the two midfield players who were required to cover so much ground and provide the link between the defence and the attack, were both injured. So Taylor paired Barnes and Blissett in midfield and put Worrell Sterling on the wing. A glance at the team sheet showed how uneven the side had become. There were now six attacking players on the pitch. Watford lost 2-0, although they had been practising how to play effectively with five forwards on the pitch in the belief it might be useful if they found themselves chasing a game. It proved unworkable. At the other end, the defence was prone to costly lapses in concentration. Goals were flying in, which made it all the more surprising when Steve Sims was sold to Notts County for just £50,000. A few months earlier, he'd been racing to get fit in time for the cup final. Now, he was surplus to requirements. I had trained all summer, and I was as fit as I'd ever been, says Sims. I was rested, my ankle was fine, the knee was fine. At first, Sims thought Taylor was going to recall him to the first team. He said to me that Notts County had come in for me, and I thought, well, if he's telling me about it, that's it. I'd better go. As the goals against Total mounted up, the supporters began to direct their frustrations at Steve Sherwood. Against Aston Villa, Watford led 2-0 and 3-1, but were pegged back to 3-3. Sherwood was clearly held down by Mark Walters, which allowed Steve Foster to head Villa's first goal. Then Peter With kicked the ball out of Sherwood's hands to score the equaliser. Everything was going against him. The cup final legacy was an unwelcome one. He let in another three at Carrow Road as Watford lost 3-2 to Norwich and slumped to the bottom of the table. Taylor had to do something to stem the flow of goals as quickly as possible. He appealed to the supporters to ease off Sherwood, who was still bruised by the injustice of Wembley. In an interview with the Watford Observer, the manager said, You are taking the goalkeeping situation out of my hands. 
Sherwood could see the writing on the wall. The supporters were getting on my back a little bit at the time, and supporters do have a big effect on a team, he says. If they get behind a team, it's surprising how much it can lift you, but goals were going past me. A lot of them weren't my fault, but because of the cup final and the goals going in, people were turning on me. I remember Graham calling me in and saying, You're not making the match-winning saves you did two seasons ago. That was when I started to have some doubts. A Dutchman called Jacques Storm, the second-choice goalkeeper at Ajax, had spent part of the summer on trial at Watford and played in a 3-2 win over Morton during a short pre-season trip to Scotland. He wasn't the answer. Cardiff's 18-year-old Andy Dibble was linked repeatedly with a move to Watford by the papers. Taylor was interested, but for a teenager, the players' wage demands were unrealistic. Taylor was not prepared to break Watford's rigid pay structure because he felt it would have been unfair to the other young players, Lee Sinnott, David Barsley and Maurice Johnson, to make an exception. Besides, he needed a goalkeeper who could go straight into the team and make an immediate impact. Taylor drew up a shortlist that included Brian Garn of Aberdeen, Peterborough's David Seaman, Liverpool's reserve player Bob Boulder, Hull City's Tony Norman and Portsmouth's Alan Knight. However, one man stood head and shoulders above the rest for Taylor. Tony Coton first caught Graham Taylor's eye during a league game at Vicarage Road on the last day of December 1983. Watford won 1-0, but Coton was an imposing presence. It was remarkable to think he was only 22 because he commanded his penalty area like a veteran and was not shy when it came to organising defenders older and more experienced than he was. Maurice Johnston scored the winner with a tap-in, but I remember making a fantastic save from Wilf Rostron diving header, says Cotton. Then came the FA Cup quarter-final at St Andrews. We'd already seen Tony play, but that performance, even though he was on the losing side, confirmed in my mind we'd look at trying to sign him, says Taylor. One Tuesday evening, early in the new season, Taylor travelled to Craven Cottage and stood on the terraces to watch Coton play for Birmingham against Fulham. The Blues won 1-0 as they continued their fine start to life in the second division following relegation. Coton kept five clean sheets in seven games before he signed for Watford. He took conceding goals as a personal affront. As a player, he was exactly what Taylor was looking for. However, there was a catch. Coton was a rough diamond and was frequently in hot water. Birmingham's tough reputation followed them off the pitch and round the city's pubs and clubs. They played together, they drank together, and if things got out of hand, they brawled together. The problem for Coton was that he refused to turn the other cheek. He didn't see why he should take an insult on the chin just because he happened to play football and he could never stand by and see one of his friends in trouble. It was a difficult time for Coton. His mother had recently died, so he asked his father to move into the house he'd recently bought because he hated the idea of him being by himself. Never had the adage, win or lose, we're on the booze, been more apt than with the Birmingham team. Too often his nights out ended with a scuffle, an altercation or an angry exchange with a taxi driver or a doorman. The incidents were getting more serious and Coton now had a court date hanging over him. The move to Watford came completely out of the blue. Coton and his teammates had been to a function one evening that had gone on late. Coton had stayed at Mick Harford's house, and the pair travelled to training the next morning a bit the worse for wear. When they got to the training ground, Coton was summoned to the manager's office. I was racking my brain trying to recollect what I'd been up to the previous night and the nights before that, he says. I was pretty sure I hadn't been in any trouble, so I had no idea what the manager wanted. City's manager, Ron Saunders, told Coton they had accepted an offer for him. The club was skint, and Watford's offer of £300,000 was too good to turn down, considering it would make Coton the third most expensive goalkeeper in British footballing history, after Phil Parks and Peter Shilton. Coton left the office, and before he knew it, Birmingham's chief scout, a man called Norman Bodell, was driving him down the motorway to meet Graham Taylor. I was panicking because I was wearing jeans and a T-shirt. I thought there was no way I could turn up like that. Coton says. Then I started to think about what I was doing. My mum had recently died and I thought I couldn't leave my dad on his own. We stopped at the services and I rang my dad and told him I was on my way to sign for Watford. I asked him what I should do and he said I should go for it. 
Taylor knew all about Coton and the pending court date to answer an assault charge following a clash with a nightclub doorman. Graham was so impressive, Coton said. He knew me better than I knew myself at the time. He'd worked out what my dad and I had been thinking for a while, that I needed to get away from Birmingham and my old mates because I kept getting into trouble. I've never been one to run away from something or leave my mates in the lurch. If someone says something about me, I want to know why they've said it, and it used to get me in bother. Taylor told Coton, I know you're a good lad deep down, that you look out for your friends, but you've got to learn to turn away from confrontational situations. Shortly after he joined Watford, Coton was in the dock at Tamworth Magistrates Court. Taylor gave him a glowing character reference. Later on, I heard his sister had told someone that she hadn't recognised who I'd been talking about, says Taylor. When Coton was sentenced, Taylor's heart was in his mouth. I have to admit, in that split second when the verdict was read out, I thought, oh no, we've just spent £300,000 on this fellow and he's going to prison. The six-month term was suspended for two years, and although he didn't transform into an angelic figure overnight, the threat of jail, the backing of his new manager, and the support of his teammates kept Coton out of trouble. It was explained to the rest of the players that they had to help him avoid certain situations, says Taylor. I told Tony he'd be a fool to go out and get involved, and that we would help him, but only as long as he kept out of trouble. Coton says he would always make a point of watching Match of the Day if Watford were on it, because they guaranteed goals. After talking to Taylor, he was still not fully aware of the scale of the problem he was being asked to tackle. I was a vocal goalkeeper, and I organised the back four well, which Graham felt Steve was not so good at, says Coton. He said they had a talented defence as individuals, but that they needed pulling together and that they could be naive at times. He told me, he had his eyes on a new centre-half, and that me and him together would be enough to tighten things up. He said we'd be fine in midfield and attack, we just needed to stop giving away goals. But I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. Coton earned every penny of his pay rise on his debut against Everton. George Riley put Watford ahead early on, but Everton scored three before half-time to take a commanding lead. Watford hit back in the second half, but no sooner had they got within a goal of Everton then the defence let in another one. A pulsating game of football, completely different to the cautious cup final a few months earlier, ended 5-4 to Everton. Graham Taylor crawled into the press conference after the game on his hands and knees in mock exhaustion. It raised a chuckle from the waiting press pack, but Watford's inability to stop gifting goals to the opposition was no laughing matter. They were still bottom of the table. The journalists also wanted to speak to Coton. I thought, how can I go and do the press? I've just let five goals in, he says. To be truthful, I don't remember much about the game other than picking the ball out of the net. I was worried people were wondering, who's this guy we've bought? And I suddenly realised how Steve Sherwood felt. Despite watching the ball fly past him five times, Coton had endeared himself to the Watford fans by punching Andy Gray on the jaw by accident as he came out to clear the ball. I don't remember it, but apparently I whacked him. And whenever I see Watford fans now, they mention it, he says. Still, the goals went in. Two at Chelsea, three against Luton Town, Newcastle and Ipswich on consecutive Saturdays. Watford were the most generous team in the division and were becoming cut adrift at the foot of the table. Maurice Johnston finally got his move to Celtic after the 1-0 home defeat to Coventry City in early October. The lacklustre performances on the pitch suggested his mind was elsewhere. His willful defiance of Taylor's strict code of conduct made his position untenable. Taylor had spoken to a few of the senior players and they confirmed what he feared, that Johnston's presence in the squad was becoming divisive. There was a discipline I'd imposed and Morris was capable of breaking that discipline, certainly in his social life, he says. The problem I had was that Morris could be out until three in the morning but he'd be at training on time and he could keep up with the physical aspect of the work. Others would have seen what Morris was getting away with and wonder, why can't I do that? I spoke to three senior players. Wilf was one of them. And without putting words in his mouth, there was a feeling that the discipline of the club, what we were all about, was at risk. Steve Terry puts it more bluntly. I don't think the Morris-George partnership could have lasted much longer, to be honest. 
Watford doubled their money on Johnston, but having seen Taylor slap a £2 million price tag on the striker during the summer, the supporters felt short-changed by the £400,000 transfer fee. Taylor's problem was that they were no longer in a position to hold out for more money. The player wanted to go, and the manager needed to move him on. John McClellan's football career had been nomadic, to say the least. In ten years, he played for five clubs in four countries, from his native Northern Ireland to Wales and England before joining Glasgow Rangers in 1981. Having been so impressive during Northern Ireland's successful 1982 World Cup campaign, it was a surprise there'd been little interest from south of the border. McClellan was never a student of the game. He loved playing, but he wasn't bothered about watching. In a country where everyone supported Manchester United or Liverpool, as a boy, he had a soft spot for West Ham, partly because he liked the colours, partly just because it was different. Perhaps his willingness to stand apart from the crowd stemmed from the fact that his mother was a Catholic and his father a Protestant. In a country torn in two by sectarian violence, McClellan and his two older siblings had a foot in either camp, but weren't entirely at home in either. Born and brought up in White Abbey, a village twelve miles from Belfast near the coast, McClelland was only nine when his father died. The rest of the village rallied round to look after the McClelland children. It was a mixed village, he says. Every pub had been shut at and there was probably a bit of tension, but I didn't realise that because I was young. I never got into trouble, although my older brother sometimes did. There wasn't a football team in his village until a man named Davy Jarvis put one together to give the boys more to do than kick a ball around in the street. McClellan took to the game. When he was nine, he played with the under-twelves. By his mid-teens, he was a skilful but skinny midfielder playing for an adult team. Matches were often bloodthirsty affairs, especially when a Catholic team met a Protestant one. The frequent lunging challenges helped hone McClellan's ability to read the game and spot danger coming a mile off. I remember playing for a team, and the manager said, I've got this really cheap set of kit. No idea why it's so cheap. When he went to collect it, he realised why. It was bright orange, the colour of the Protestant orange order, and a direct provocation to the Catholics. When we played against Catholic teams, we used to shake hands at the end, and they'd give us ten minutes to get out of their village. The Irish League side, Porter Down, signed McClellan. In the right circumstances, he impressed as a neat creative midfielder. The manager would play me against the passing teams, he says. I didn't realise it then, but when we played the rough teams, he'd leave me out. Middlesbrough, managed by Jack Charlton, were the first club in England to show an interest, but they didn't want to pay a transfer fee up front. Instead, they offered to pay after McClelland had played a certain number of games. Irish clubs had fallen for that one before. They knew the player would be sold on before they saw any money. When he was 18, McClelland went on a week's trial at Cardiff City. You went over to play for the youth team, and if you didn't make the grade, you came home at the end of the week. If you did well, you'd get a game for the reserves, and if you showed enough in that, you'd get signed, he says. By now, he was playing as a centre-forward. He did well in a reserve game against Arsenal, so the Bluebirds offered him a deal. He was there a couple of years, but played only a handful of games before moving on to Bangor City. They said they'd get me a part-time job, so, between the football, and that I'd be earning more than I had at Cardiff, so that sounded like a good deal, until it turned out the job was in a fish factory. I had to be up at five in the morning to go shelling mussels and gutting fish. Later on he worked as a groundkeeper at the local park, then as a mobile floor cleaner, going round in a three-wheeled van like Rodney Trotter. Football was not a career. It was a pleasant diversion, a way to earn a few extra quid. While at Bangor, he went fifteen games without a goal and got the feeling he was about to be turfed out. Fortunately, the manager was sacked before he could get rid of me. Then, just an hour before a Welsh Cup match, Bangor discovered one of their regular central defenders was not registered to play in the competition. The new manager asked if anyone could play centre-half. I just stuck my hand up. He asked, When was the last time you played there? I said, When I was twelve. He didn't look too happy, but no one else was volunteering, so he said, You'll have to do. And that was it. 
McClellan's pace and his ability to read the play, combined with a calming influence on those around him, meant he took to the position straight away. While he was at Bangor, Watford's Tom Wally went to watch him a couple of times, but he wondered whether the jump from the Welsh League to the third division might be too much. They could have got me for ten grand, McClellan says. Bangor reached the Welsh Cup final in 1978. Wally was there that day, as was Billy Bingham, a Northern Irishman who had kept tabs on McClellan since his Portadown days. Bingham was the manager of Mansfield Town in the third division. He offered me a contract. I was getting £80 a week, doing two jobs with Bangor. Mansfield offered me £100. It wasn't a difficult decision, he says. Within 18 months, Mansfield were relegated and Bingham was sacked. His next job was as Northern Ireland manager, which led to McClellan's international call-up. Playing international football was a big step up, but McClellan slotted into the team comfortably, looking every bit as if he belonged alongside Arsenal's Pat Jennings and Sammy Nelson and Jimmy Nicholl and Sammy McElroy of Manchester United. In March 1981, he played for Northern Ireland in a World Cup qualifier against Scotland. John Gregg, the manager of Glasgow Rangers, was in the crowd, and the elegant, composed centre-half caught his eye. The name was not familiar to him, and when he checked the match programme and saw McClellan played for Mansfield, he thought it was a misprint. Gregg couldn't believe McClellan was playing in the fourth division. McClellan joined Rangers in May 1981. His mixed parentage might have caused problems because Rangers, the staunchly Protestant club, refused to sign Catholic players. I didn't count as a Catholic, apparently, because I'd been brought up a Methodist, he says. He was 25 years old, and although he had never played at such a high level before, he knew Rangers were getting him on the cheap. I'd been on £120 a week at Mansfield, and Rangers offered me £200, he says. John Gregg said, Well, who doubles their money in a day? You'll be a squad player to start with, but if you get on the team and do well, we'll review you. I thought I'd be getting 10% of the transfer fee as a signing-on fee, but Greg said, Now, 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 I'm very disappointed in you talking about money. The thing was, it wasn't the money that bothered me. It was the thought that they were paying me less because they thought they could get away with it. For the first time in his career, McClellan struggled to adapt. When you've been playing at Field Mill and suddenly you go to Ibrox, it is a lot to take in. I struggled in the first few games. I say to people, when you play in the lower leagues, it's like playing drafts. When you get into the top leagues, it's like chess. In the lower divisions, two people want the ball. At the top, everyone wants it, and it becomes a question of who do you give it to. There's less space, and you have to be more precise. After playing badly in a European game against Dukla Prague, he then dislocated his ankle and was missing for seven months. It wasn't until the final phase of the season that he was fit again and he returned to the Rangers team for the last ten matches and did enough to clinch a place in Northern Ireland's World Cup squad bound for Spain. Having recovered from injury, he was fresh and he was one of the unsung heroes of the Northern Ireland side that beat the hosts. When he returned to Rangers, Greg made him the captain, but there was no pay rise. I'd had a cost of living rise. But that was it, he says. I'd been to the World Cup, played in Europe, and I was the captain, and they were still paying me what I was on when I joined. Rangers was a massive club, but they were living in the Dark Ages. It was run like a society. The directors felt it was an honour to play for the club, and they had not modernised, he says. The thing that annoyed me was that these were successful business people and their business had all modernised to keep up with the times, but they ensured the club was stuck in a time warp. Greg was sacked, but his successor, Jock Wallace, kept just as tight a grip on the purse strings. McClellan's contract was due to expire. He asked for a signing-on fee to go with it, but was told they were only offered to players who were joining the club. I explained I didn't get one then either, but they just told me I'd missed the boat, he says. That's when the propaganda started. I'd been told to keep it all quiet, but stories started coming out saying I was refusing to sign a contract and I was holding the club to ransom. They told me if I didn't sign what was on offer, they'd make sure I never played again. McClellan felt he was being taken advantage of. In autumn 1984, Rangers were hit by a spate of injuries, so McClellan was persuaded to sign a short-term contract with better pay to cover the League Cup and UEFA Cup campaigns.
Graham Taylor already knew about McClellan and had sounded out Jerry Armstrong. He went to Hampden Park to watch the League Cup final between Rangers and Dundee United and was secretly delighted that McClellan was playing out of position at left-back. There were people from other First Division clubs watching too, including Arsenal's Don Howe. At the end of the game, Taylor turned to Rita and asked, Did you see anyone you liked? She said she hadn't, but I knew the Rangers' left-back was the one for me, and I was so pleased he was playing there because I knew he was not a left-back. He was so quick. He looked ungainly and awkward, but boy, he could put you in his pocket. A few weeks later, McClellan was thrown up front alongside the Australian Dave Mitchell as Rangers tried to overturn a 3-0 deficit in their UEFA Cup tie against Internationale at Ibrox. Rangers won the match 3-1, but it was not enough. After the game, Taylor and Eddie Plumley were due to meet McClelland at Glasgow Airport. Now Rangers were out of Europe, they were willing to let the player go. Also at the airport was Alex Ferguson, the manager of Aberdeen. At the time, Aberdeen were winning everything. But I wanted to get out of Scotland and see something new, says McClelland. I knew absolutely nothing about Watford, only what Jerry had told me about Graham Taylor. They offered about £550 a week, which was a lot more than Rangers were going to pay. I thought I had a really good contract, but they didn't tell you about the house prices, do they? McClellan promised Taylor he would sign, but that he wanted to go and tell Ferguson face-to-face why he wasn't going to Pitodri. Graham said, well, sign the contract first. And I said, no, I'll give you my word and I'll go and tell Aberdeen I'm signing for Watford. I felt that my word was enough and that it would prove something to him. A lot of negative stuff had been flying around about me, so I wanted him to see that I was a trustworthy person. Taylor was nervous, and with good reason, because Ferguson told McClellan that Aberdeen were willing to pay him a lot more. Alex wrote down some figures on a piece of paper and pushed it across to me. But I didn't even look at it, McClellan says. I slid it back and said, If I look at that, you'll think this decision is about money. It was never about money. I was made promises, and they were broken time and again. Now I just want to get out of Scotland. McClelland had no idea where Watford were in the league. He didn't spend his Sunday mornings poring over the results and tables in the paper. He wasn't interested in anything beyond the next fixture most of the time. But after he'd signed the contract, he looked at the first division table. It was early November by now, and Watford was still second from bottom. He traced his finger across the league table, taking in Watford's record. They'd played 13 matches and won just once. They had scored 26 goals. Only Everton, Arsenal and Tottenham, who occupied three of the top four places, had scored more. However, Watford had the worst defensive record, letting in 32. Nothing to worry about, he thought. The way I looked at it, the hardest thing in football is scoring goals, and I saw that was not a problem for them. They let in lots, but as far as I was concerned, that's the easy bit. There were no natural leaders in the defence. Wilf Rostron was very well organised, but in the middle. Steve Terry and Lee Sinnott were very young. I thought we could sort it out pretty quickly. When Watford's new signing, the man who had cost the best part of a quarter of a million pounds, the man who was going to fix the leaky tap that was Watford's defence, first hobbled out onto the training pitch, the other players thought Taylor had been sold a turkey. He walked as if he had his legs on backwards. McClellan's awkward gait was one thing, but as he headed out for his first training session, they were whispering to each other, He's never played for Glasgow Rangers. He was wearing tiny shorts and a T-shirt, and these little white ankle socks, says Coton. He was so stiff he could barely walk. I heard that people thought I'd had to bribe the doctor in order to pass the medical, McClellan says. Before he joined the club, Taylor had offered McClellan the captaincy, perhaps thinking it might be the clincher. They already had Wilf, who was a perfectly good captain. I was happy to play under Wilf, and if I earned it, that was fine, but I didn't need to be captain for my ego. However, on the first day, McClellan feared Rostron had got wind that someone else had been offered his armband. We did this thing where we had to sort ourselves into three teams to do this relay race. You had to run and chip the ball and chest it and lay it off and all sorts of things. The losing team got pelted with mud by the other two. Anyway, they explained the rules to me and I was so confused. We lined up in teams and I joined the line Wilf was in 
and he moved to another line, so I followed him and he moved again. I thought, oh, this is great. The captain already hates me. Afterwards, I had a word with Wilf and asked him why he'd been trying to get away from me. He said, I didn't want to be on the team with the new boy in case you were crap. You had to laugh. It made me feel at home straight away. McClelland was efficient and organised on the pitch and off it. I didn't drink or smoke and wasn't a problem to the manager. Graham said he was amazed I never went to him with a problem. But I'd bought my first house when I was eighteen. I had ordinary jobs. I didn't drive so I asked the club to get me some ordnance survey maps of the area and I took the train and walked round to see where I wanted to live. McClellan's impact on the team was immediate. Watford won all of his first five games, whereas they let in 32 goals in the first 13 games without him, they conceded just 39 in the remaining 29 matches of the season. McClellan's debut was in a 3-1 win against Sunderland, who had started the season well. In the paper, Oliver Phillips said it was the best debut he'd ever seen, he says. It changed overnight, but I hadn't realised that I was the change. People considered me a bit of a journeyman, but I could talk well and I knew where the danger was going to come from. Someone who'd watched me for Northern Ireland over the years said to me once, John, I hope you don't take offence, but I've never seen someone influence the game so much by doing so little. What I worked out was that you either had to be quicker than your opponent, or stronger, or cleverer, and the game was to work out which one you could be. Gary Lineker never got booked, so there was no point winding him up. But others might lose the plot if you got into them. Others you'd have to get at another way. You might say, oh, that was a terrible pass they just gave you there. You're just not getting the service, are you? And you'd be right under their skin. Early in McClellan's first match, Colton saw why the manager had signed him. The ball came over the top and Howard Gale, who had been with me at Birmingham, was onto it, Colton says. Gale had three or four yards head start on John, and Howard was never slow anyway. He got into the box, so I set myself up ready to make a save. All of a sudden, McClellan came past him, took the ball from under his feet and cleared it down the line. It was remarkable the way he produced that speed from nowhere. Watford quickly pulled away from the foot of the table. The arrival of Colton and then McClellan added a steel and resilience to the team that had been lacking, but, as Steve Sherwood says slightly ruefully, I just wish he'd signed McClellan before he bought Tony. A superb 4-0 win at Elland Road against 2nd Division Leeds United was followed by an equally brilliant 4-1 demolition of West Bromwich Albion at Vicarage Road to put Watford into the quarter-finals of the Milk Cup. All of a sudden, Wembley was on the horizon again. We really took the mickey out of West Brom that night, says George Riley, who scored one of the goals. We were doing flicks and back heels and stuff, and some of us were actually doing the ole with every touch. It was a bit cheeky. The West Brom players were absolutely steaming about it, and at the end they wouldn't shake hands with us, so we were going, oh, boo-hoo, did we beat you? Three weeks later, Watford were to play a league game at the Hawthorns. Graham Taylor had heard through the grapevine that West Brom wanted revenge and that Riley was their number one target, so he put him on the bench. It was one all when Riley went on to replace Worrell Sterling. As soon as he got on the pitch, the Albion players were after him. Ali Robertson came right through me, sliding in on his backside, but I managed to get out of the way. Martin Bennett tried to go over the top and there was a lot of verbal going on, Riley says. It was getting a bit nasty, but they never quite got me, which was winding them up even more. West Brom scored the winning goal, but that did nothing to calm Robertson. As we went down the tunnel, Robertson was pushing me, so I said, OK then, who wants it? I turned round and Barnsley and the rest of the lads had disappeared into the changing room. Ali pulled his arm back and was about to punch me, so I poked him in the eye. Then it all kicked off. Riley and Robertson were both sent off, despite the fact the game was over and they were on their way to the dressing room. They were summoned to the Football Association's headquarters in Lancaster Gate in London to explain themselves. Graham turned up looking like Petrocelli, the smartly dressed American defence lawyer from the television drama, says Riley. It was all a joke, really. The first person I saw was Ali Robertson, and he said, How you doing, big man? And we shook hands and had a bit of a laugh about it. I went in first, and the youngest on the disciplinary board must have been about 85. 
There was this big Subutio table in front of us. There was no video evidence or anything like that. So the idea was that we could use the little men to act out what had happened. Anyway, I had a Subutio set when I was a kid, so I was moving the little men about, and Graham turns to me and says, For goodness sake, stop touching the men, and don't you dare laugh. But it was hysterical. They asked me to tell them what happened, so I'm moving the Subutio players and saying, OK, this is me, this is the four West Brom lads around me. Taylor was used to defending Riley, but, like Maurice Johnston before him, his patience was close to the limit. Newcastle United had tried to buy Riley in the autumn, but Taylor turned down the offer, saying it was the wrong time. In February, he changed his mind. Riley had been annoyed that Johnston had gone to Celtic without him in the summer. Mo said we'd go as a pair, he says. I was on the verge of the Scotland squad, and if I'd joined Celtic I might have forced my way in. I'd have walked to Glasgow to sign for Celtic. It wasn't working as well with Luther and I. Graham was getting annoyed. We had quite a few parties at my flat in Hemel Hempstead and the Residents Association wrote a letter to the club complaining. Graham said in front of the whole squad, I've been your manager but I'm not going to be your social worker. As the meeting broke up, Steve Harrison came over and said, Hey big man, why didn't we get an invite? The thing was, people would ring up and complain even when nothing had happened. There were troublemakers who'd do that, and I had no idea why, but it was all adding up for Graham, and I think he decided to get rid of me. Once Watford's Milk Cup run had been brought to an end, Taylor accepted Newcastle's offer. The supporters, who had been slow to warm to Riley, but had now taken him to their hearts, were not happy. Taylor's reasoning was pragmatic. It was far better to take £200,000 for him now than £40,000 later. Getting knocked out of the milk cup was a huge disappointment because everything seemed to be pointing in the direction of the Twin Towers. Watford cruised through to the quarter-finals and were drawn against either Sunderland or Tottenham at home. When Sunderland pulled off a shock at White Hart Lane in their replay, many Watford supporters had their team in the last four. The other quarter-final games were between Grimsby and Norwich, Ipswich and QPR and Chelsea and Sheffield Wednesday. Nothing to fear there, surely. The problem was people were already looking too far ahead. They had us at Wembley already, says Taylor, who despised complacency and was irritated that Watford let a glorious opportunity for more cup success slip away from them on an icy pitch. The weather played havoc at the turn of the year. On New Year's Day, Watford led Liverpool 1-0 at Vicarage Road until Ian Rush scored an inevitable equaliser in the 88th minute. Four days later, the Hornets hammered a very poor Sheffield United side 5-0 in the third round of the FA Cup. Luther Blissett scored four, giving the Blades defender Phil Thompson a particularly torrid time. Then came a spate of postponements which left Watford without a game for the best part of three weeks. People were getting restless. The Sunderland tie had been called off once already, as was a home league match against Manchester United that was supposed to have been shown live on ITV. Instead of kicking their heels, Watford were now desperate to get the Milk Cup game on. Luther had a great game on an icy pitch shortly before it, and I think we thought there was no way Sunderland would be able to handle him on the ice, so we made sure the game was on, says Wilf Rostron. But the game should never have been played. The team trained on the pitch at 7.45pm, kick-off time, the day before the game to make sure they were used to the surface. There were other factors that meant the game needed to be played. Sunderland had travelled down from the northeast and were not keen to go back again without playing as they'd already travelled down for one postponed match. Sunderland spent the morning training at a nearby school, practising how to defend against Lee Sinnott's long throw. Watford dominated the game completely. They had 20 shots on goal to Sunderland's five. Nine of Watford's efforts were on target. They had created enough chances to win the game three times over and yet they were undone by a freak moment of misfortune. Tony Coton had barely been called upon or match, but Sunderland won the match with a horrible deflection. Clive Walker's shot from well outside the penalty area hit Nick Pickering's backside as the Sunderland defender was trying to get out of the way. The ball swerved wildly past Coton. Watford had loads of chances and our goal was a bit lucky, says Sunderland centre-forward Colin West. OK, a lot lucky. We were hanging on at the end, but Chris Turner pulled off some fantastic saves. Sunderland beat Chelsea over two legs in the semi-final, with West scoring a couple of goals. 
There was a riot at Stamford Bridge, he says. When I scored my second goal, there were two police horses on the pitch. I ran between a policeman and a Chelsea supporter before shooting. It was absolutely crazy. Sunderland were at Wembley, but despite scoring the goals that helped get them there, West was in for a shock on the morning of the final against Norwich City. When Sunderland's manager Len Ashurst named the team, West was not in it. He wasn't even on the bench. And he has a strong suspicion as to why he was left out. The Milk Cup final was played on Sunday, March the 24th, just four days before transfer deadline day. West believes Sunderland had already accepted an offer for him, from Watford. Oh, I wasn't injured for the final, that's for sure, says West. I couldn't believe I wasn't even on the bench. What hurt was that I didn't have a clue until the morning of the game. I've since found out, through one or two people, that the transfer was more or less done before the final. Sunderland lost 1-0 and Walker missed a penalty, which was all the more galling for West. I took the penalties, and I know that if I'd played and scored, and we'd won the cup, there was no way I would have wanted to leave Sunderland, he says, as it was when I heard a few days later the Watford were interested, I was in the mood to go. During the week, Taylor watched West play for Sunderland Reserves at York, then asked him if he'd join Watford. I thought it would be a great move for me to play with Barnes and Callaghan. I didn't want to stay at a club that had just left me out of the biggest game in my career. But we'd just finished doing up our first house and my missus was adamant she wouldn't go. She was in tears. Initially, West turned down Graham Taylor, explaining that his wife didn't want to leave the North East. Graham arranged to meet my wife and I and within ten minutes of meeting him, she said, OK, we'll go. He was such a nice fella and he sold the whole club. On transfer deadline day, West travelled south with Taylor on the train for a medical and to sign the contract. On the way, they negotiated the contract. Stan Cummins at Sunderland had told me to write down everything I wanted on a piece of paper so I wouldn't forget, says West. What happens is that these managers, they talk a lot and promise you everything and then you sign and realise you've forgotten something. I wrote down what I wanted for my basic wage, relocation money and bonuses. As we were talking, I was keeping this note under the table so Graham couldn't see it. Anyway, he starts talking about money, and he's offering me more than I've got on my piece of paper, so I was happy. West was still only 22 years old, but he provided a physical presence and was a lot more mobile than his size suggested. Within weeks, the £115,000 transfer fee already looked a bargain. West scored his first goal in a 5-0 win against West Ham and added another six in the final ten games of the season as Watford soared clear of the relegation zone. After a poor start, they had pulled clear of the foot of the table. It had been tight for a while, but they'd lost just two of the last eleven games and rose to eleventh in the table, the top half, matching the previous season's position. The final week of Watford's season was remarkable. They won 5-1 at Tottenham, then beat Manchester United by the same score, before losing 4-3 at Anfield against Liverpool. By any standards, they were astonishing results. At the time, Taylor hailed the win at White Hart Lane as his best in Division 1. The Hornets were absolutely rampant, racing into a 3-0 lead before the half-hour mark. Some days we just had this swagger, says Nigel Callaghan. We didn't respect Spurs for the sake of it. It was a case of Graham Roberts. Who are you? Show me you're any good. Two days later, Manchester United came to Vicarage Road and Watford hammered them as well. United had the FA Cup final against Everton coming up. We were probably the last team they wanted to play, says Steve Terry. Again, Watford raced into a 3-0 lead in the first half. Blissett scored Watford's fourth midway through the second half and was going for another when he collided with the United goalkeeper Gary Bailey, leaving him with a hairline fracture of the skull and a large gash on his forehead. Watford's final game of the season was at Anfield on a Friday night. Because of postponements during the winter, the league season had been disrupted and Liverpool were squeezing in their last matches before they were due to meet Juventus in the European Cup final in Brussels. The cop was stunned into silence as Watford went 2-0 up in the first half. West insists he scored both goals, although one was officially put down as a Jim Beglin own goal. Gary Porter had come into the team on the left of midfield because Blissett was injured. Barnes played through the centre and had one of those nights when everything he did came off. 
It was a fantastic game, says Porter. This was the home of football, and we were 2-0 up. I had a very good game, and I should have scored to put us 3-0 ahead. The ball came in, and I attacked the back post, but put it into the side netting. Graham was a big believer in trapping the back post, because he hammered it into us that there were goals there. I didn't score, but at least I was there to miss it. That's what he said, anyway. Liverpool floated away from Watford in the second half. Kenny Dalglish dropped a bit deeper, taking a position just behind the two strikers where the Hornets' defence couldn't get a grip on him. Dalglish was inspired and within 15 minutes of the restart, Liverpool had turned a 2-0 deficit into a 3-2 lead. It was sublime stuff that left Watford spinning. Barnes equalised, but Dalglish managed to score Liverpool's winner with four minutes to go. It was one of those nights when a team pushed and prodded Liverpool into producing the very best they were capable of. And as Liverpool stepped out of the ranks of the mere mortals, as they were sometimes capable of doing, Watford couldn't live with them. The Anfield crowd appreciated Endeavour as much as they admired brilliance. As Watford's players walked off the pitch, the cop roared their approval. Liverpool's Phil Neal turned to Porter and said, Son, you'll remember this game until the day you die. You just witnessed one of the great games by one of the greatest players in the country. Taylor says, I've spoken to Mark Lawrenson since, and he said they got a real bollocking from manager Joe Fagan at half-time. They were told in no uncertain terms they were facing an embarrassment if they didn't sort it out. In the second half, Dalglish was absolutely brilliant, but for us to end the season in that manner, even if the last game was a 3-4 defeat, was fantastic. We were still being Watford, still looking to win games even though we were risking defeat. We didn't win a league game until October the 13th and were bottom of the table. The fact we recovered to finish 11th says a lot about the players. We were still a side that won or lost. We didn't settle for draws, and I think that's what made our football special. I'd like to think our supporters knew we'd never give in, no matter the circumstances. Watford and Liverpool played with carefree abandon that night, showing everything that was great about English football. Unfortunately, one of the game's blackest days was just around the corner, and it would have consequences for everyone. End of chapter 18. Next time, the family club. Watford set an example to English football in an era blighted by hooliganism. Hooliganism.